0: Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Decenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopez, and today I'm joined by Dr. Rebecca Sear. She is reader at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, teaching demography and researching human reproductive behavior from an evolutionary perspective. She is particularly interested in taking a comparative perspective to understanding human reproductive behavior and exploring why such behavior varies between as well as within populations. In 2008, she co-founded the European Human Behavior and Evolution Association, and she's currently also Honorary Secretary of the British Society for Population Studies and a board member of the Evolutionary Anthropology Society. So, Dr. Seer, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. You're
1: welcome. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay, so let me first ask you, because I've already had quite a few, quite a lot of evolutionary psychologists on the show, and also a couple of people who do some work on human behavioral ecology. So I would first like to ask you, uh, what exactly is human behavioral ecology and some of the differences that, It has uh, in comparison with uh, disciplines like evolutionary psychology, because I guess that they intersect a lot, right?
1: Yes, they do. So human behavioral ecology is the study of behavior in ecological perspective, but it uses an evolutionary framework. So the starting assumption is that human behavior like our physiology has evolved through natural selection. The difference with evolutionary psychology is really that human behavioural ecologists study behaviour um, in the real world, whereas psychologists tend to study the psychology um, of people a lot a lot in the lab, really. Um, there are some methodological differences and disciplinary differences as well. Human behavioral ecologists tend to come from an anthropology background, so we do a lot of work in non-Western populations. Psychologists tend to come from a psychology background, and they will work on, on Western populations.
0: Yeah, sure, there's that. A Weird problem, right, yeah, with, with yeah. weird societies that is Western-educated, industrialized, rich, and developed societies, because we've been discovered, b- discovering recently that uh, perhaps there's at least some variance between those societies and uh, non-weird societies, at least in some major aspects, right? Yeah, so...
1: Um... Human behavioural ecologists tend to work in non-weird societies, but are really interested in human variation rather than universals. So that's another difference with evolutionary psychologists. So one of the reasons that human behavioural ecologists tend to work in non-weird populations is that we're interested in working across many different populations to understand variation. Evolutionary psychologists are more interested in human universals, and their philosophy is then it doesn't really matter which population we study because we're interested in those universals.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. So, would you say that perhaps another um, minor difference, perhaps, because I guess that evolutionary psychologists also tend to take this into consideration, but perhaps human behavioral ecologists, because they study their populations or their societies in their local environments, perhaps, Uh, they tend to focus a little bit more on how the environmental cues or the natural environmental cues tend to affect their behavior and perhaps produce some changes from society to society.
1: Yes, absolutely. Mm
0: -hmm. Yes. Okay. But since you also come from an evolutionary perspective, so you take into account how different environmental cues are processed by our brains in different societies, in different environmental conditions, of course, but to do that, that, you also take into consideration uh, how our mind has evolved and how it responds uh, to, uh, to these different cues, right?
1: Yeah, so human paleocologists are interested in variation, but we assume it's adaptive variation. So in in biological jargon, it's known as phenotypic plasticity, where the same genotype can give rise to different phenotypes, the observable characteristics, depending on the environment. So although we're interested in environmental variation, we still assume it's adaptive variation. Um, And the capacity to evolve, the ability to vary, um, has also been selected for by natural selection. So it's all evolutionary-based, even though we focus on human variation rather than human universals.
0: Sure, Uh, and I also don't know if you take these things into account, but recently, particularly through the work of uh, uh, cultural evolutionists and people who study gene culture co-evolution, it's also the case that the environments we create for ourselves also, through time, have an impact on some uh, genetic aspects as well, correct?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, The classic example of that is lactase, um, the ability to digest milk. So, um About 10,000 years ago, we started to move away, humans started to move away from a hunter gatherer lifestyle and began to develop other modes of subsistence like pastoralism, animal herding, and some populations subsequently evolved the ability to digest milk even into adulthood, which is an unusual characteristic for a mammal. So there's clearly gene culture evolution, and humans are clearly still evolving as well. It's not that we are adapted only to a hunter gatherer lifestyle, we are continuing to evolve both physiologically and cognitively. Mm
0: Yes, and because we've already referred to the differences between weird and non-weird societies, just to get a little bit more specific here, would you say that perhaps, so uh, I think that uh, our minds for, uh, for for people who live in modern industrial societies and also for more traditional societies, they share perhaps most of the characteristics, let's say, in terms of cognitive processing and things like that. But would you say that perhaps our moderns, because our modern societies are in, in a lot of aspects very different from the ways of living of more traditional people, like some groups of hunter gatherers and horticulturalists and, and other groups like that, that perhaps uh, the ways we respond to these new, uh, to these novel environmental cues from an evolutionary perspective, uh, might lead us to adopt certain strategies that are not really part of the repertoire of more traditional peoples, or, or not?
1: Yes, that's absolutely right. You need to be careful when you're taking an evolutionary perspective to study modern human behavior, because clearly there are some aspects of our environment which are quite different from the environment that humans have lived in throughout most of our history and that we're likely to be best adapted to. But it's also the case that there are lots of aspects of our modern environments that aren't that different. Humans are a very social species. We still spend a lot of time interacting with other humans. So in a lot of ways, we haven't changed that much. Although we do need to be careful not to assume that all behavior is adaptive in modern environments. And that's that's not the assumption that human behavioral ecologists take at all. Um, But that doesn't mean that you can't study behavior in very modern environments either. You can still understand behavior as having come about from evolved mechanisms, but you need to make um, clear that you're not then going on to make the assumption that all behavior is currently adaptive. Studying that mismatch between what our evolved psychological mechanisms are encouraging us to do and um, the modern world can actually be quite informative in helping us understand those evolved psychological mechanisms.
0: Yes, perhaps what I was trying to say is just because in our modern environments, we are influenced by environmental cues that were not really available during most of our evolutionary history. Perhaps the same cognitive mechanisms, uh, produce outputs that that, uh, we don't really observe in more more traditional societies, not because they weren't really able to also follow those same strategies, but because they didn't have the the same environmental cues at their disposal, let's say.
1: Yes, I think that's right. And modern low fertility could be one example of that modern societies tend to have very low fertility rates where women are only having one or two children on average. Even though we're, we're relatively wealthy, we're very healthy, we could easily produce more children than that and have them all survive to adulthood. So in theory, we could be increasing our reproductive success with higher fertility, but we don't do that in modern societies or few people do. So that could be one example of a modern behaviour which wouldn't have been seen in the past and um, requires some explanation from an evolutionary perspective. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Uh, And so, talking now more specifically, and since you also referred to that, about reproduction and fertility rates, what are some of the most important environmental cues that influence uh, either in modern or more traditional societies how people decide in terms of uh, having more or less children and also birth intervals and other aspects like those.
1: Fertility is quite complex so deciding how many children to have and when to have them um, are, are going to involve quite complex decision-making processes. I should say at the start as well I don't believe they're conscious conscious decision-making processes
0: sure.
1: Um so these when I say decisions I'm not talking about rationally thought-through decisions. But there are clearly lots of different factors that affect how many people, how many kids people have and when they have them. In terms of environmental factors, there's been a lot of work on mortality risk in the environment and environments which have high mortality risk seem to lead people to have earlier first births and more children overall. The basic idea is that you need to have more children in high mortality environments to make sure that more of them survive to adulthood because they're at relatively high risk of death but there are many other factors as well. Um, You need to find a mate fairly obviously before you can start having children. Um, You need to have social support. I've done a lot of work on humans being cooperative breeders. So we raise children in cooperative family units. Mothers get a lot of help from other relatives to raise kids. So some of the work I've done suggests that that social support is really important. And it may actually be one of the explanations for relatively low modern fertility, that women aren't perceiving that they have a lot of social support for raising kids. In terms of length of interbirth intervals, parental investment will be quite a key um, factor there. So people time their children so that they can invest sufficiently in the child at the start of the birth interval. So they don't tend to have very short birth intervals because that would then risk investing investment in the child opening the interval. But they also don't want to have too long an interval because that would reduce their reproductive success. So balancing parental investment um, is quite an important part of deciding when to have children in terms of length of birth intervals. But it's a very complex process and many factors feed into it. Mm -hmm.
0: Sure, sure. And we, we unfortunately don't have the time to dig into all of them here today. But anyway, uh, can we say, because you've already alluded to the fact that humans are cooperative breeders and it's important for them uh, to have uh, mechanisms of alloparenting parenting, that is not just the parents participating in raising the children, but also perhaps grandparents and even other elements of the family the more extended family so can we say that homo sapiens our species is a species of cooperative breeders from an evolutionary perspective
1: that's my opinion based on the evidence that we have in front of us women clearly do get a lot of help from many people in raising children sometimes from the father grandmothers and older women are often important Siblings, young children are also hugely important in most traditional societies in helping raise children. So the way human women organize their reproduction is very different to that of great apes, where the mother will have a child, lactate for a period of time, wean it, but then once it's weaned, it's pretty much nutritionally independent. So then the mother gets on with the next infant. Human children are not like that. Once human children are weaned, they are not independent. They can't take care of themselves. So others have to help the mother out in caring for those children. So it might, in my opinion, yes, the evidence suggests humans are cooperative breeders.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Uh, and an interesting aspect that I think about all of this is that... Uh, I mean, not all of, uh, the elements of the family invest the same way in all children. I mean, there are, there, there are some differences between how mothers and fathers invest and also how maternal and paternal grandparents invest, right? And, and those have perhaps uh, also a biological basis due to paternity uncertainty, right?
1: Mothers and fathers certainly invest differently in children. There's often some kind of sexual division of labor in human societies where men and women are investing in their children in slightly different ways. So for example, men don't always do a lot of hands-on childcare, at least of young children, but they may be doing all kinds of other things, bringing food back to camp. Um, They invest in different ways. Um, Mothers also do a lot of productive labor, but they also are the ones who are tending to do the the, the hands-on childcare of very small children. Um, But there's also quite a lot of cultural variation that in some societies, fathers do do a lot of hands-on childcare. So as in all things, humans are very variable. In terms of the difference between maternal and paternal grandmothers, the evidence tends to suggest that maternal grandmothers invest more in children than paternal grandmothers and often that's explained from an evolutionary perspective because of paternity uncertainty. So maternal grandmothers can be certain that their grandchildren are their own, because maternity is certain, Paternal grandmothers can't be certain because paternity is not certain. I'm I have made that argument in the past, but I'm beginning to think it's perhaps not the most important factor in determining that differential investment. Because if you look at paternity certainty across the world, or at least misattributed paternity, where children are being raised by fathers who are are not their biological father and wittingly, it's actually very low, it's very rare worldwide, it's maybe one to two percent across human populations. So in fact, in most cases paternal grandmothers can also be pretty certain of their that their of their relatedness with their their grandchildren so the explanation more to be to do with other factors for example that it tends to be the mothers that do the hands-on childcare, and if mothers have a close relationship a closer relationship with their own mothers than their mother-in-law then it may be that their own they turn to their own mothers for help with childcare. remember that the paternal grandmother probably has daughters of her own so she may be investing in her children through her daughter so it's not that paternal grandmothers aren't investing it's just that grandmothers are choosing to invest in the children of their daughters. Um, so, I think I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical now of the importance of that paternity uncertainty argument. It, it may be plausible, but I'm not sure that it's sufficiently plausible to, to drive the quite consistent difference we see across so many societies in differential investment between maternal and paternal grandmothers.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so there might be other factors that yeah. also go into it, right? Okay, so now moving on to another topic. Uh, Are there some important sex differences, that is differences between men and women, in terms of the benefits and trade-offs that they consider when deciding uh, uh, how many children to have with a particular person or perhaps uh, to move on to another partner and have children with new partners and, and things like that?
1: Potentially, yes. In evolutionary biology, there's um, work on sexual conflict. The, the reproductive interests of males and females are not necessarily identical. So, there may be cases where there is sexual conflict, and what's good for, for one sex is not so good for the other, within a relationship at least. So, we've done some work on this in human populations as well, um, working with Christina Moyer and Kristen Snopkowski on a paper a couple of years ago. They were a little bit skeptical that there was a great deal of sexual conflict in human populations because most human relationships are monogamous. That means that the reproductive interests of men and women should on the whole be mostly very similar. There may be some cases where they're not the same, where it may benefit one partner to leave a relationship and form a new relationship and have children with somebody else. But that depends on the partner being able to find another relationship, another partner. So again, there's been an idea uh, in the evolutionary literature that one explanation for the tendency for men to prefer um, larger family sizes than women is that men are not bearing the cost of reproduction in the way that women do. So they can just force women to have lots of kids. And if that wears out their wife, they just move on and find another one. But most men won't be able to find another wife. Most men spend most of their lives in a monogamous relationship with one wife worldwide, so in fact it doesn't make sense for men to push women into having higher fertility than is good for the woman herself. There may be some cases where it is, if a man has particularly high wealth or status, it may be possible for him to relatively easily find a new partner, but on average for most men their interests are likely to be quite closely aligned with that of their wives.
0: Okay, uh, and in terms of human mating more generally, because you already referred to the fact that most human relationships tend to be monogamous, they, they tend to be, of course, I'm not saying that all of them are monogamous, but they, are, they tend to be serially monogamous, that is, the people don't tend to stick with the same partner throughout their entire lives, right? <sighs>
1: There's, again, a lot of variation between human societies. So humans have been referred to as monogamish, so we're mostly monogamous, but there are a lot of non-monogamous relationships too. So if you count up the number of societies worldwide, actually most of them allow polygyny, where one man is married to several wives. If you count up the number of people worldwide though, the vast majority of people are monogamous. Most men don't become polygynous, even where it's culturally acceptable. In monogamous societies, serial monogamy is typically acceptable, though sometimes not for women, but I don't think I actually have the data at my fingertips. But again, I'm not sure that that's the most common form of monogamy worldwide. I think it's likely to be the case that most relationships, most human relationships are long term and monogamous. An exception there might be in the past where adult mortality rates would have been a little bit higher then people would have been perhaps serially monogamous simply because of the death of their partner.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, that's very interesting because whenever we hear about this topic, particularly from evolutionary anthropologists uh, and some people that also study cross-culturally the phenomenon of human mating, they, they tend to focus a lot On serial monogamy or variations of uh, polygyny and polyandry and things like that. So uh, perhaps you're saying that perhaps the phenomenon of uh, uh, having a relationship with the same person for the entire duration of one's life, perhaps it is more common than people tend to say it is or, or not.
1: I think it's possible, though, again, I don't have the data at my fingertips. I mean, clearly there are many, many cases uh, of polygyny, polyandry, serial monogamy. Um, These are not unusual human characteristics at all. But it might be that people are just slightly more interested in more interesting variations of mating strategies. Perhaps long-term monogamy is not considered sufficiently interesting to study by a lot of researchers.
0: Yes, right. Okay, and now another topic, because... I mean, and I've even recently talked about this with another person, uh, about the phenomenon of father absence and some of the effects that it might have, uh, particularly in girls in terms of their age of puberty onset and certain problems that they then might be predisposed to, like having children very early and uh, and higher fertility rates and things like that. uh, uh, And I want to ask you about this because uh, you wrote this article called Cross-Cultural Evidence Does Not Support Universal Acceleration of Puberty in Father Absent household so could, could you tell us about the findings that you had there because it seems that perhaps it's the, it's another problem regarding uh, studying uh, focusing our studies on weird societies and perhaps neglect, uh, neglecting a little bit more uh, other alternatives
1: I think that's exactly right. So there's been quite a long-standing assumption in psychology that's leaked out into other disciplines that focus on weird societies too, like sociology and some areas of public health, that father absence in childhood leads to an earlier age of puberty and earlier age at first birth, particularly, as you say, for girls. The evolutionary um, the rationale for that is that father absence is an indicator of a harsh environment, and it's adaptive in harsh environments for girls to mature early, to start having children early, and to have higher children overall is their fast life history strategy. That argument makes sense in a weird population, but it doesn't make so much sense in non-weird populations, because in non-weird populations, harsh environments are likely to mean girls are in poor nutritional condition. And if girls are in poor nutritional status, they're going to find it hard to accelerate their reproductive maturation because that requires a certain level of nutrition. Um, so it's always seemed to me to not quite work as a universal evolutionary mechanism It doesn't mean it doesn't it's just it seemed to me a little bit implausible so i recently reviewed the literature with a couple of colleagues and did find some papers which had looked at some measure of father absence in childhood and age at puberty not just for girls but for boys as well in both weird and non-weird societies and in weird societies you do see this quite consistent finding but even even in weird societies more recent studies have found it harder to show that relationship between father absence and age at mannequin I also found quite an old paper which mentioned a few conference papers which had not found a relationship between father absence in childhood and earlier age at puberty in weird societies, which actually led me to suspect that the relationship in weird societies might be more complex than has been assumed. Maybe an instance of the file drawer effect, where people were assuming they would find this relationship and when they didn't, they simply didn't publish their results. But if you look at non-weird societies, the relationship is much more mixed. There are some cases where father absence is associated with accelerated manichae, but actually there aren't that many. There are other cases where father absence is associated with delayed manichae, or there's no relationship at all. And the same is true for boys in both weird and non-weird societies. Relationships are much more mixed. So I think the story is much more complex than has been ordinarily told. And yes, I do think it's a problem of the literature focusing very much on weird societies and trying to extrapolate those results to all of humanity, which is problematic.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and so, we've already talked here a little bit about uh, Lo parenting and cooperative breathing. So, uh, is, is that behind uh, the evolutionary basis of menopause, that is, at a certain, uh, at a certain age, women not uh, no longer reproduce and perhaps uh, they are apt to fulfill a role of uh, of uh, cooperating in the breeding of their grandchildren and other children as well in their community perhaps
1: yes that's originally why i started looking at the influence of grandmothers on on child health and mortality and um, this idea that, the grand, uh, that menopause evolved in order to create these helpful grandmothers. Um, the costs of giving birth start to increase quite dramatically in older women, um, which suggests there are costs to having children in later life. But if older women in later life are investing in their grandchildren, there are also benefits of switching off reproduction in later life. And it does seem like cross-culturally, grandmothers do invest a lot in their grandchildren, which supports the, the grandmother hypothesis for the evolution of menopause. The problem with that though, is that um, just looking at modern societies, you can't really draw any conclusions about the evolution of menopause, because it may be that women are investing in their grandchildren because they can't have kids of their own because they've gone through menopause, which means that you know, they have no option but to invest in their grandchildren. So some people have done mathematical models um, which uh, in which you can play thought experiments about um, the costs and benefits of continuing reproduction versus investing in grandchildren in older age. And some of those do show some support for the grandmother hypothesis, although not all of them do. But also, more recently, there's been some really interesting work on whale species. There are very few species that go through menopause, but um, Orcas, killer whales, happen to be one of them, um, and I think there are a couple of others as well. And it seems also that in these species, the older postmenopausal females are investing in their their existing children and their grandchildren, which provides a bit more support for the the grandmother hypothesis for the evolution of menopause. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so now to talk uh, again about one of your papers that you published by, back in two thousand and sixteen called the reproductive ecology of industrial societies because i think this is another thing that leads us again to the discussion about findings in weird and non-weird societies but i I would like just to uh, give a citation here from your paper and then ask you to please comment on it and tell us what you really meant by it and i'm going to read now Researchers in both evolutionary and social sciences have have argued that the measurement of fitness-related traits, example, fertility, offers little insight into evolutionary processes, on the grounds that modern industrial environments differ so greatly from those of our ancestral past that our behavior can no longer be expected to be adaptive. In contrast, we argue that fertility measurements in industrial societies are essential for a complete evolutionary analysis. In particular, such data can provide evidence for any putative adaptive mismatch between ancestral environments and those of the present day, and they can provide insight into the selection pressures currently operating on contemporary populations.
1: So going back to the difference between evolutionary psychology and human behavioral ecology, in theory, the two disciplines should be compatible because psychologists study the psychology, the evolved psychological mechanisms, human behavioral ecologists look at behavior in the real world. Unfortunately, in practice, there was a very unhelpful argument that was put forward in the 1990s by some evolutionary psychologists, which said that we shouldn't study behavior in the real world. It's completely pointless if we're evolutionary people because we live in our modern environments are so different from those that we've evolved in. Modern behavior tells us absolutely nothing about evolutionary pressures. However, we can still look at evolved psychological mechanisms in the lab. That is fine if we're evolutionary people. That argument made no sense to me at the time. It still makes no sense to me. Why our psychological mechanisms should have been magically preserved from the Pleistocene whereas our behavior hasn't been magically preserved. That. That argument really makes no sense to me. Um, Apart from anything else, it begs the question of where our behaviour comes from, if not from our psychological mechanisms. But um, this argument has, unfortunately, I think, led to quite a lot of damage done in the evolutionary community. And it has led to there being less integration between evolutionary psychology and human behavioural ecology than there should be. I think that we should be studying both psychology and behavior, but being aware that we do live in environments that are quite different often from those that we evolved in. But I think evolutionary psychologists need to take that into account just as human behavioral ecologists do. So I really think we do need to study actual behaviour in the real world, because that will give us an insight into our evolved psychological mechanisms. For example, if we can understand why modern fertility is so low, that will give us some better insight into those reproductive decision-making evolved mechanisms. If it's about the lack of support, if it's about, you know, we're searching too long for a mate because we have so much mate choice now in modern societies. Those are all evolutionary predictions, and if we find support from them, that suggests that we do actually have those evolved psychological mechanisms. So we do need to study behavior and psychology in modern environments, but we need to be aware that neither our psychology nor our behavior may be adaptive in those modern
0: environments. Mm -hmm. Okay, so still talking about our modern industrialized societies and now about perhaps some of the effects that our cooperative breathing psychology might have on some of our current problems, let's say. So uh, uh, nowadays in industrial societies, we tend to have low fertility rates and perhaps uh, as economists say, sometimes this uh, in the long run can have a toll on social security systems because we will no longer have enough people uh, to produce enough for, for us to also be able uh, to have a strong social security systems to support the more needy people and the older people as well and other people like that. So uh, uh, this is one aspect. But would you say that perhaps also the fact that we have less children nowadays is another factor that, um, that lead people to neglect more easily older people because they might not need them as they were needed in more traditional societies to help raising children
1: grandparents are still used a lot um, in child care i think in the uk something like uh, 60 more than 60 percent of um, grandparents are involved in child care of their grandchildren so it's i'm not sure it's the case that older people are being neglected uh, now, because they they are they are essentially useless in modern societies, they're still used a lot for cooperative breeding. Um, in terms of your question about social security, social security is quite interesting from an evolutionary perspective because it effectively reverses intergenerational wealth flows. The demographer Ron Lee, um, who's interested in evolutionary ideas, has written about this. So, in most societies, wealth flows down the generations. Parents invest in their children, grandparents investing children and grandchildren, and so on, um, which is what you expect from an evolutionary point of view. Resources are invested in increasing reproductive success, which is necessarily down generations. What social security systems do is they reverse that wealth flow. What you get is a lot of working age people paying taxes, most of which are then used to pay pensions and to provide health care, which is mostly used by older people. Some social security goes for education as well, but in fact, most of it goes upward, up the generations. So social security systems are interesting because they do seem to be quite novel from an evolutionary point of view. But in fact, um, social security systems are not leading to the neglect of older people. They're actually giving older people a rather larger proportion of wealth than was typical in most populations.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, so going back to questions about reproduction, uh, what sort of problems might arise From having societies, and I'm not saying that this happens, but if it happens, what might happen uh, if we have societies which are uh, too skewed toward uh, males or females in terms of the percentage of population and in terms of sex ratio, of course?
1: Um, That's relatively hard to predict. There's a lot of work on sex ratio in in evolutionary biology. There's a, a very classic idea, Fisher's idea, that in most populations, sex ratios will be roughly equal, because if you start to get a bias towards one sex, then any parents that have the rare sex will have higher reproductive success, so that mechanism will always roughly balance out the sex ratio. That seems to be true across most human populations as well, except that there are some populations in South and East Asia which do seem to have extreme sun biases, which in combination with things like restrictive reproductive policies in in China where small families were encouraged, this seems to have led to very male biased sex ratios. That is very hard to explain from an evolutionary point of view. It's also quite hard to predict what will happen from an evolutionary point of view, except that it does seem likely that there will be a rebalancing of those populations at some point in the future. Um, What will happen in the meantime, again, isn't clear. You will have a a large male population who is going to find it difficult to to find a partner. Um, There are various different points of view about whether male biases in populations um, lead to either a lot of um, violence, violence against women, for example, because you have a lot of men competing for a relatively small number of women. But an alternative point of view is that very, in very male biased societies, women have the upper hand, essentially, because they have a lot of choice. So men tend to start behaving in the way that women want them to, because that's the way to find a partner. So, there are actually alternative evolutionary predictions about what might happen in those very male-biased societies. But in the long term, I would predict a rebalancing of those sex ratios.
0: Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in general, it's very difficult, even if we have all the parameters set in place and if we take into account all the possible variables that we can study, it's very difficult to predict in the long run How societies, and I'm including modern societies, will will evolve in terms of uh, the mating strategies that people might prefer or the number of children that they might want to have and other reproductive and mating aspects like that, right?
1: I think it's difficult to predict with a lot of precision because humans are so variable so there are various different options and whatever happens in the long term there's still going to be a lot of variation that is certainly something I would predict but I also think from an evolutionary perspective most people are likely to continue having children because we are—we descend from a long line of people who have had children. Anybody who has any tendencies not to have children is probably going to be quite rapidly selected out of the population. And also mostly those children are raised in some kind of long term relationship. So I would predict that humans would still continue to have children and to raise children in some kind of um cooperative long-term relationship, but we're getting a lot of help from from other people as well. That might be worth saying that the cooperative breeding strategy is quite flexible. Often it's grandparents and older siblings who are used for childcare. Modern societies don't allow siblings to care for their younger siblings. That's something that's now essentially illegal in many um, parts of the world. And in fact, that might also be leading into modern low fertility. In the past, siblings would have got, or children would have got a lot of practice in how to raise children. They would have got a lot of experience in being around small children. Modern Western societies, we really have nothing to do with children until we have our own. And that I think might lead to, yes, yeah, some, um, it might be part of the reason for modern low fertility. People are just not experienced with kids, they don't know how to, to care for them, they become quite a scary prospect. But my original point was going to be that the cooperative breeding strategy is quite variable. So who is helping mothers and fathers care for children is quite flexible. It may be the state, You know, schools provide a lot of care, people buy in care. Um, polyamorous relationships apparently are now becoming common in some areas. So there are all kinds of ways in which people will continue to have and raise children, I think. Um, So the exact nature of the family may look different from one family to the next, but nevertheless, I would still predict that in the long term, we're still going to continue having children and raising them in some kind of cooperative family unit.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes, it's interesting that you refer to the role that the state might also play, because I mean, uh, if the state nowadays is also providing people with means for them to raise raise their children alone, then that also might play a role in, in how people decide to establish relationships with one another and if they want to have a mate to help them or not, correct
1: potentially but i think that would be a very small part of any decision-making process the state in effect doesn't provide an awful lot of help to raise children um you know the idea of the single mother or living off welfare which is uh, common in the right-wing press that that's a very rare situation it is really hard to raise children with no help whatsoever except a a welfare check it's also not that easy to get those kinds of welfare checks so that um the social security, a very, very small proportion of social security budgets goes on welfare payments. It is mostly to health care, particularly for the elderly and pensions. So the idea that the state is really taking over the role um, of that cooperative family unit is is unrealistic, I think. It's a factor, particularly school, actually, not so much welfare, but, but the school provides a lot of care for children, but again, it's not very flexible care in that women or somebody still has to go and pick the kids up at three o'clock every afternoon. So it's, um, it's still quite difficult for women or couples to raise children just with state help without any other help at all. So I, I'm not sure the state in terms of childcare is really that important.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Y- yes, I was just asking to know if really it had an important role or not because I wasn't sure of it. Uh, but, but I mean, even the school perhaps because the people that take care of children in school are not, uh, from a biological perspective, genetically related to those children? Perhaps also uh, those kinds of care that they provide are, uh, perhaps they don't tend to be as good as the care that would be provided by the family or or not?
1: It's true that... Um, people who are paid to provide provide childcare, whether that's in school or provide private childcare providers are not genetically related and therefore may have less of an interest in caring for children, but they are being paid to provide a service and they need to provide that service well if they want to be continue to be paid. So there is an exchange relationship there which incentivises people to do a good job. But also when it comes to school age children, um, by the time children are school age, you know, four, five, six years old, in most traditional societies, they wouldn't be being cared for by adults anyway. They would be being cared for by older siblings and other children. Most children in most societies, including our own, spend most of their time in the company of other children. So, I don't think that's a particular issue, no. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. So, just one final question. Uh, from all of what we've been discussing today… Uh, could we say that then uh, human behavioral ecology and other related anthropological disciplines can also give us knowledge that could help us devise better strategies to solve some social current problems and even in more traditional societies?
1: Absolutely. I think if you really want to understand human behavior, you need to incorporate um, the knowledge that human behavior has evolved through natural selection and therefore you can make predictions based on that assumption. I think one of the really key things that evolutionary perspectives um, bring is the understanding that humans evolved to maximize their reproductive success, not their health or their happiness. So a lot of public health initiatives, for example, are kind of based on the assumption that people should be maximizing their health or their happiness. So behavior change policies are very common now in the UK, um, which are designed to get people to stop unhealthy behaviors and start behaving healthily. And the way this is often done is by telling people that smoking is bad for you, or alcohol consumption is bad for you. But that assumes that people care about their health. And of course, to some extent they will, but ultimately what they care about is their reproductive success. So you need to make sure that you are sending the right kind of messages um, to make people to behave in ways that you want them to behave. There's no point telling somebody in a high mortality environment that smoking is gonna kill them in 20 years time if they think they're probably not gonna survive for the next 20 years anyway. So some public health initiatives which don't take an evolutionary perspective can be problematic. They may even widen health inequalities um, because they are not taking into account this idea that, that we are not designed to maximize our health, we're designed to maximize our reproductive success. So, yes, I absolutely think evolutionary perspectives are important in, in improving human health worldwide. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, because as you said, we devise a lot of social policy to try to change people's behavior in one direction or the other. But perhaps many times we're making bad assumptions about what really motivates people and what people really value, right?
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so Dr. Siri, it was really a pleasure to have you on the show and to talk with you. Just before we go, would you like to tell people perhaps what are some of the best online sources for them to get in touch with more of your work?
1: Um, I guess my website would be a good start. I try and make all of my um, publications freely available um, or go to my Google Scholar page. Yeah, I try and make everything freely available
0: okay good so i will be leaving links to that in the description box of this video and so again dr sir it was a pleasure to everyone and thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show
1: thank you for the invitation
0: hi everybody thank you a lot for watching this interview until the end and also by the way for coming to my channel As you might have noticed, I've started this channel in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. To keep this channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge. Any amount, even if just one dollar, would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons, Karen Litzke Anne Blanchett, Perelga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantal Gelina, Jim Frank, Francis Ford, and Hans Fredrik Sunda. Thank you for all.